This week, Ruth E. Carter, legendary designer behind the powerful costumes of the blockbuster hit Black Panther. Plus, the lowdown on the spring TV season. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hello and welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original podcast. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Spring TV is heating up as we race into Emmy season. Later on the show, IndieWire's Liz Shannon Miller helps us navigate the TV landscape. We talk about the returning favorites, new binge-worthy shows, the politics of Roseanne's revival, Trump fatigue, and much more. But first... I was blown away by the movie Black Panther. Young director Ryan Coogler has only done two movies prior, but each brilliant in its own way and bringing something completely new to their respective genres. Black Panther is no exception. I'm honored to talk to this week's guest, Ruth E. Carter. She has brought her art and her vision to some of the most iconic films in history. She's worked with directors such as Spike Lee, Steven Spielberg, and Ava DuVernay, to name a few. And now she's taking our breath away with the intricate and powerful costume designs of Black Panther. Here she embraces African art and history, futuristic fantasy, and comic book elements. You're telling me that the king of a third world country runs around in a bulletproof cat suit? The Black Panther lives. He's coming. That's damn calm. Watch me do my I hope you're ready, bro. Because I'm just getting started. Let's have some fun. I want your weapons. Your secrets. It's all mine now. Is this your king? This ends today. Ruth Carter's designs for the many female characters in Black Panther are particularly powerful, like the bright red uniforms worn by the all-female security force called the Dora Milaje. Costumes worn by women in superhero stories have traditionally not seemed like the most comfortable for ass-kicking, bustiers and high-heeled boots. I started by asking Ms. Carter what vision she and Ryan Coogler had for the women of Wakanda. The women usually have this, you know, provocative look about them, um, but we were seizing the opportunity um, to rewrite that a little because this um, world had never been seen before in film, and it was our opportunity to start a trajectory of these women who could look beautiful, are beautiful, um, and could be fully clothed. So and sexy, the, I mean. And sexy, yeah, yes. They really are. Yes. And also because, you know, the Black Panther is basically a guy who's walking around in a skin-tight black suit. We didn't want to have his elite fighting force in, you know, uh, tube tops and cheerleader skirts. We wanted them to actually look badass like real fighters. And we talked about it quite a bit, and very early on, I was doing um, some illustrations of the Dora, and they were complete with 
the way that they're seen in the comics where they're a little bit more um, scantily clad, as well as the way that the Marvel illustrators had done them where they were um, looking a little bit more like you see them now. And so that sparks the conversation of why do we want them dressed this way? And Ryan's response was that they are real fighters that we need to believe that they're real fighters. And therefore, their organs, their vitals, if their skin is is exposed, they could um, be um, wounded. That we have this special resource of the the vibranium in Wakanda, and, and their clothes could be laced with vibranium, whereby, you know, if they are struck, that it would not penetrate that uniform. You know, those were inherent in that whole Wakandan um, culture that has been established in the comics. This is your first superhero film, really. But I read that you've said, I feel like I've been designing superheroes my whole life. What did you mean by that? (laughs) Well, it refers to um, having to dress um, a, a leader in the community, a icon in the music industry, when you think of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, you think of these leaders that are larger than life, that are pillars in the community, that are heroes to our, 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 our church and our children, and I've had to examine their lives and, and, and to figure out how uh, to dress them in, in the films that I have done as well as, you know, uh, Tina Turner and her life story. When you start working on a biopic about a, a real person, what's your main focus when you begin the research process? Oh, my main focus during the research of anyone's life is what is going on in uh, socially, politically, uh, what is the climate economically, I really need to know what the constraints are with the person and what what the climate is amongst the people. And that spurs me on to understand the why and um, the, the struggle. And it helps me make decisions about the person's clothing based on, you know, their own story and their travels and the possibility of encountering difficulties along the way. When you were approached about Black Panther, what was your first sort of gut reaction to working on a comic book movie? Uh, my first gut reaction was I better learn about the comics because <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't really know very much about uh, the comic story, you know, as I said, I'm a storyteller first, and I have to understand really the whole story around the Black Panther, where he lives, and you know why he is the king, and and I didn't know any of that, so I was really intimidated by the learning curve. When you started learning about the sort of character and and the comic books, what struck you? What what did you find interesting? The most interesting was the people of Wakanda. When I looked at the comics and I saw how the illustrators drew these different people from these different places and they really represented their their place of origin. Say, for example, in the comics there might be a tribal council and you'd see a guy sitting 
at a desk and he has on a suit, but also he has on the big Maasai headpiece. Mm -hmm. Or Ramonda in the comics, she was the queen, but she was very low-key in the comics, sometimes just looking like she's in a long tunic and barefoot and she had dreadlocks. So there's a consciousness that goes along with the Black Panther story, and that's the thing that I tapped into right away. Well, I'm gonna, I want to get into some specifics, but first I want to ask about um, Ryan Coogler. He's just so young and still made three brilliant movies, each one really. Yes, um, he did. What was his vision for your art on Black Panther when you, when you started talking to him? Well, you know, first he said, you know, this is about Africa and we have to explore Africa and make this a beautiful story. Some of the words he used when we were talking about the King's Challenge at the Warrior Falls, mm -hmm. that when you look up into the rocks, that it had to be a feast for the eyes, that it needed to be magnificent and really, really beautiful. And, you know, that got me both excited and worried because I had so much to do. And I, I was with him on that. I really wanted that piece to reflect all of the tribes that we were putting into the Black Panther. Yeah, there's the sheer volume of costumes, just that shot you're referring to of them standing on the cliff is pretty amazing. How, how big was your team? Oh, I had about 15 people in Atlanta, but I had people also in Los Angeles. My uh, main assistant was um, helming the ship in Los Angeles. And I was in Atlanta working there with uh, several assistants and keys and, and uh, costumers that got people um, all together for me. Now, you and production designer, the incredible Hannah Beekler, you guys really had to build a whole new country, a whole new community with Wakanda. Can you tell me a little bit about your collaboration? Mm -hmm. Well, working with Hannah Beekler was a joy. It was a pleasure. Uh, she came on with Ryan um, from Fruitville Station on up. She definitely uh, was the person I knew who knew him well. Um, I could rely on her because I felt that she had his trust, and I was still the uh, I was the neophyte. I mm -hmm. I needed to kind of prove myself, so I leaned on her on her guidance because I knew that. She had had so many conversations with Ryan about this world of Wakanda and what it should look like. And she put together a Bible, a Wakandan manual, that told you um, exactly what the trajectory of Wakanda from 10,000 years ago to today. And, and you really had a nice guide to you know, what the people believed, what the community was like, what each district would include in terms of which tribes lived in each district. I gave this uh, manual to my entire department, and I told them that they all needed to study it. Everybody needed to study it, and we needed to know this like in uh, like the back of our hand so that when they're doing things, when I'm not around, 
they would have a point of reference. What an amazing document that sounds like. Yes, it was. She says it was 500 pages. I probably had the abbreviated version because <laughs> mine looked like it was about 150 pages, but that was enough for me. I can, that's a lot either way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about the African research specifically. Did you visit specific countries and tribes, and, and, and what were you... You know, what did you find? Well, we visited, we visited the tribes and the countries through the history books. And my, I had some of the most beautiful books on African tribes and history and ceremonies. What intrigued me so much was the meaning of so many of their pieces and the, and the crafts. I mean, it's a vast continent and it has a vast resource with which to pull from for your aesthetics. Is there anything um, or a few things you can tell us specifically that you sort of put into the Dora Milaje, the warriors in the movie or something that you really transferred? Oh, sure. I felt um, that the uniform that the Dora Milaje wore needed to be look like something that was around for centuries. I didn't want it to look like it was a just a uniform to fight in. I felt like it needed to have a story to it. So we chose each element of the Dora to reflect some area of Africa and and some purposeful meaning behind it because all of the Dora come from different tribes. Mm -hmm. um, Marvel is very hands-on with specific characters and they were very hands-on with the Dora. So when I first came on the job, they gave me an outline of what the Dora would look like. And I, in turn, brought it to life, added the African elements, added the infusion of the culture, but also I bumped up the red because I felt like the red, when you look at the red in some of these, the Turkana, the Maasai, you see this bright, beautiful red. And I felt like this costume needed to have that strong red, that intimidating red. Anytime you see someone walk into a room and they have on all red, they're pretty intimidating, oh I must God. say. Oh, my God, yeah. I could never pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you see the Dora, we only had a, a, a handful of Dora. They were the specialized force. They were like the Navy SEALs that protected the king. So we needed their red to be imposing. And so when you saw the eight Dora, it maybe it felt like 10 Dora or it felt like 15 Dora. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that panther suit. I imagine that that must have been sort of a huge chunk of your work because that's a pretty iconic thing. What went into designing um, your version of the panther suit? Yeah, well, um, I would say that once I was given the Panther sketch, it was very simple uh, in its design. Uh, it was supposed to take us uh, from the uh, Captain America Civil War suit that he wore to this aesthetic that was simpler, the cleaner, the easier, the you know technology, higher technology. And so it was an opportunity for me to um, infuse some of the language of Africa into the suit. Now, there was a Wakandan language that traveled throughout the suit, like it vined uh, around the suit in different areas. Uh, and when the panther is faced or forced into some 
opposition, the kinetic energy uh, would light it up. Mm-hmm. So, but it, but it was very very subtle. Also, there's a muscle suit that goes on uh, when the Black Panther is wearing the suit. It goes on underneath. And because our our surface pattern had to look like it was thin and it was high tech, um, there was an opportunity uh, for the muscle suit to play a role in the surface treatment of the suit. And so um, we made the muscle suit out of vibranium. This uh, vibranium is a silver. We didn't make it out of vibranium because vibranium is made up. But right, if, right. The, if, if there was a real vibranium, it would be silver. Marble so the fans silver, everywhere. Yeah. What is she yeah. saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the muscle suit is silver, and you can actually see it behind the surface um, treatment of the suit so that it would have this luminosity and have this this great look of, like, strength, and it would really highlight the muscles and all of that. So, you know, that also played into how we were redesigning or recreating the Panther suit different from um, the Civil War suit, the Captain America Civil War suit. So, you know, those two um, items in themselves took a lot of R&D, mm-hmm. um, research and development, and um, as well as the process itself. You know, the process does take us some time. You know, we sculpt the muscles for the, out of clay to and add them onto you know, a real facsimile of Chadwick Boseman's body to decide on how dynamic we needed the, the panther to look. And, and Ryan Coogler really wanted the Black Panther to look more human-like in terms of his, his dynamic shape. You're also designing for an actor to actually be able to move and work and act in this. I was just I just interviewed Doug Jones who plays the amphibian man in The Shape of Water and he Oh, was, he's amazing. Yeah, and he was telling me all about how I mean, of course one realizes but the difficulty, you know, of of just simple things like going to the bathroom and then trying to not, <laughs> not being able to see um he had to emote so much through the eyes but he couldn't see because there was all these mechanics in there because of the gills and things like that you know there's all this wow um, it's interesting to um i mean that's you're also designing for him i suppose and you have to take some consideration yeah well we put the civil war suit on him as uh within our first weeks so we could understand, you know, what what the restraints were uh, with wearing a suit like that and doing all of the work um, that he had to do. Because different from Captain America: Super War, this was his film, and he would be doing a lot more right. uh, work in it. And so we had a cutter come in from the Boston Ballet who helped us design the gussets that are that are underneath the arms or oh. in the crotch area and leg area. So that um, the movement—it's like it's just like the guy from *The Shape of Water*. It's really stunt work and karate and all that, and dance are very closely related. So that's interesting. Of course, that makes total sense when you say it. That yeah. someone who's, yeah. who designs for dance would know how movement works in in you know in an outfit. Yes, <laughs> yes, and because the movement is so dynamic and fluid that. Um, they understood it best. So, you know, through trial and error, we we got her in, and um, she looked at the patterns, and she re, redesigned the, the uh, junctures so that 
there wouldn't be any problem with the suit breaking. How many, um, may I ask about the budget, how many suits did you make? Well, we wanted to make probably 20 of them, mm-hmm. but we were cut back um, a couple of times and we ended up only having six, okay. which is unheard of. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we weren't proven yet. We weren't proven oh. yet. So we didn't have the, the biggest budget to, you know, make as many suits as we needed. So we, uh, you know, Chad, who had a photo double and a stunt double, and everybody needed a multiple. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, we worked with very few, very few pieces. And there were times when maybe the, you know, knee blew out on a suit and we had to just keep going, you know, just sew it together by hand. And it might look really crude, but hope that the post-production would be able to fix it for us. Well, I can't believe the work you did. I mean, at that that it seems like you had 30 of them it looks amazing in the end thank you thank you it was a lot of hard work you were mentioning marvel earlier that they have a stake in this and they really look at your work but i was wondering a little bit about the fans because comic book fans can have really strong reactions mm-hmm. and opinions to every single detail for for, mm-hmm. for better or for worse but uh, um um what kind of reactions have you gotten from the sort of diehard fans and have you found ways to honor them as well? Well, the thing was that the Black Panther had been a um, story that most of the fans were waiting so long for it to happen on the big screen. And uh, I asked the fans that I knew, you know, about Wakanda and they were very excited and happy to offer you know, their story about Wakanda, what it meant from their times of looking at the, reading the comic books and things. So mm-hmm. I knew I had a huge responsibility to the fan base, but there was also an, an opportunity because it hadn't been seen before to, you know, take the idea and move it forward because most of the comics were written during times that I think, especially like with technology and wearable technology, it quickly uh, would date it. Mm-hmm. So so we had an opportunity to put our own spin on what Wakanda looked like and modernize it and really pump it up into this wonderful, um, creative and colorful world. And lastly, rumor has it that you've landed a new superhero movie. Is this true? Yeah, that's true. The new one that I'm about to do is called Silver Sable Black Cat, and she's part. They're part of the Spider-Man world, and uh, they were a Marvel comic, but it's being done by. Uh, it's being produced by Sony. Oh, these are female center. I mean, these are. There are super- two female superheroes, and there one is Silver Sable, who wears silver and white, and she has the real superhero suit, and the other one is Black Cat. And she's more like a girl with a dragon tattoo. She's a little bit, mm. we're doing her a little different than, than she was written in the comics so that there is this uh, story between the two of them and this relationship between the two of them. They're like opposites attract. And who plays, do, can you say who plays them? They haven't chosen it yet, so I really don't know. And director? Director is Gina Prince Blythewood. She oh. is uh, from... Uh, my past, and we did Love and Basketball together. Right, but that's she's... amazing. That's going to be so great. Yeah. Well, 
Ms. Carter, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me and for the amazing art you really made in, in this one and, and before. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for your time and the ability to talk about it. It's really wonderful to uh, be able to tell your story. So many we've done. I've done 30 years of this uh, costume designing, and, and, and this is the time that I've been able to speak the most, so I appreciate it. Thank you, Ruth Carter. Black Panther is out in theaters now and breaking all kinds of records. So spring TV season is upon us, and to help us navigate this super busy season is the excellent TV editor at IndieWire, Liz Shannon Miller. This time of year is particularly busy for TV creators and producers because the cutoff for Emmy qualifications is May 31st. Last year's Emmys were historic in that so many new freshman shows were nominated, like Handmaid's Tale, This Is Us, and Atlanta. Will we be seeing as many new shows at this year's Emmys? This year, the race is kind of looking like it's going to be a lot more repeats than it was last year. Westworld Season 2 is looking like a contender. Game of Thrones is back in the race. Uh, and The Handmaid's Tale is looking really good to, you know, once again dominate. What do you know about the new Westworld season? There's a lot of discussion about how the first season was about control and season two is going to be about chaos and and kind of what happens when the robots uh, manage to get some of their um, get, get some of their own action in place. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like things are going to go legitimately nuts based on everything we've been given. But, you know, HBO has kept the, the lid on spoilers pretty tight there for right. for right now, at least. And they've changed like the scenario, right, from a Western world to something else. Well, there's still the Western element. The show is still going to be set in Westworld, the theme park. But they will be introducing uh, a second park called Shogun World, right. which is samurai-influenced. And we got a tease of that at the end of season one. But it looks like season two is going to feature a fair more amount of that. And tell me a little, what are the shows that you're looking forward to? Well, we already talked about Handmaid's Tale, uh, or we already brought up Handmaid's Tale, which I think is going to be another, I th the, the second season is sounding really interesting. It sounds like they're going to go even deeper into the premise uh, and uh, really explore the source material beyond the actual limits of the book's storyline. Right. So that one's an easy one for me. One show that's ending its uh, run with the last season is The Americans. Um, how oh, yeah. Do you, do you think they're going to go, they can you know, go gangbusters with their last season now, which just seems so relevant regarding the Russia ties that we're going through. Yeah, I think they're very conscious of that. They've got the green light to do their final two seasons two years ago. So they've been basically planning this moment for a really long time. And I think there's a lot of exciting stuff that's going to come as a result of that. I think it's going to be narratively a very dense season of television but i think it'll also be like really meaningful for every all the fans that have really come to love that show another show that i'm really curious about what they're gonna do is roseanne um mm -hmm. sort of well it's not really a reboot right because it's the same cast it's basically. a it's a continuation and we've kind of started calling them revivals as opposed to reboots because it is like the original cast is back it's going to be the original characters it's it's not a redo, it's a continuation. In the history of television, no family was quite like the Connors. Are you ever sorry we got married? Every second of my life. Nothing has changed. Damn. They're back. I'm not afraid of you. Give it time. 
Roseanne, same cast, new episodes. Uh, classics really do hold up. And that feels sort of like it can go either way. It can be amazing in this political time, or I don't know. What are you expecting? There's far more political content than there used to be. I think, like, Roseanne, in the original, during the original run, she used to say, like, we're never going to say who politically these characters support. Mm -hmm. But that gets thrown right out the window um, in the first episode, uh, where Roseanne comes out very hard as a Trump supporter, uh, much mirroring, much like mirroring life. So how does the revival handle Roseanne's politics, real and fictional? How does it feel? I mean, it, it feels uncomfortable. It feels like something that the show didn't used to play around with back in the day because it was just it wasn't about politics. It was just about life. And I don't I'm not, I'm not opposed to shows discussing politics, but the way that the revival handles it is pretty blunt and pretty unsubtle. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I feel like that's going to be an element for people. Another element is that um, one of like this new generation of young actors, the new kids of the show, uh, one of them is genderqueer. Mm-hmm. And that's played. It's incorporated into the show in a way where they were like, we really want to take on the storyline, but we really don't know exactly what we're doing with it. Oh. There's a lot of well-meaning stuff involved, but I feel like there are some issues. People talked a lot about, on the other end of that spectrum, last year we talked about the Trump bump, sort of giving shows like SNL and talk shows and stuff a bit of a bump because people were sort of really uh, thirsting for political content or at least uh, either humor about the political situation or just drama shows, you know, meaning something. What's happened to that now, would you say? Well, I feel like uh, there, the, that, I feel like that's maybe been kind of like supplanted by um, what the creators of The Good Fight on uh, CBS All Access call uh, called Trump fatigue, where it's like the idea that, you know, People are kind of exhausted by this conversation now on either side of the spectrum. And, you know, now it's kind of there. I feel like there is some like a little bit of pushback in that respect uh, to just kind of bluntly talking about politics. Like we're trying to find, you know, and The Good Fight is a great little show. Not little. It's a great show about about that issue. And is it's a, basically a spin-off slash continuation of The Good Wife with a different cast, except for, you know, lots of recurring people from the original show come up. And it stars Christine Baranski as her character, Diane Lockhart, from The Good Wife. It's a really interesting legal drama, but it also, like, has its... It's very much a part of today and very much engaged with political culture. And, uh, yeah, I find it a really interesting... It, it's, a really, it's a really interesting take on the subject. How do you mean that it sort of... Uh was dealing with the Trump fatigue. One of the things it does is showcase characters who are dealing with like just kind of the ongoing onslaught of insane news and crazy moments in political culture. Um, and it shows them processing it the same way we are. And, but then we, they're, they're almost inspiring in some points, just like encouraging us not to give up the fight and not to let, you know, become complacent. Why is slipping us information? You know, your fuck it mode is starting to feel more like fuck you mode. Just appreciating your style. Are you still microdosing? Did you hear? What, Trump is keeping a pot-bellied pig in the White House? No, Diane. These last few weeks, it felt like death was everywhere. But now... You're seeing life again. No, I just don't care. Hi, Dad. What other shows are you looking forward to or watching right now? 
Netflix has a bunch of stuff coming up, uh, including stuff I'm sure they haven't told us is coming out yet because they love to surprise us. But I'm looking forward to checking out Lost in Space, uh, which is their remake of uh, the original classic sci-fi show. My interest in it is primarily driven by the fact that the evil Dr. Smith from the original series has been, re- has been cast as a... Has they cast Parker Posey? Oh, cool! So Parker Posey getting to be an evil scientist is kind of all I need to watch a show. Incredible casting! <laughs> yeah, absolutely, she's great. So I think there's that uh, a show that doesn't get a lot of attention, but I always find really interesting to discuss is uh, AMC's Into the Badlands, mm-hmm. which is this crazy post-apocalyptic martial arts drama was some of the best uh kung, not kung fu but some of the best uh, martial arts fighting on television and a really interesting cast including Sarah daniel Wu, who's a, a movie star yeah. um and giving a movie star performance one show that i just read was sort of impacted by real events is the reboot of heathers that i understand oh, yeah. has been pushed up because of the horrific parkland um, shootings. What do you know about that, and and will it be on? That one's a tough one to discuss because the decision to push that show, you know, based based on what I've heard about episode five of that show, that was the basically the first episode. It, it's a, it's kind of a weird, and it is a weird, violent take on you know high school life. So maybe this is probably not the right time for it. But in in episode five, apparently, really has like a, has a whole thing about active shooters. And in a in a dry comedic sense, which I think is a good reason not to air it right now. Right. That being said, um, the decision to push it came, I believe, at least a week after the Parkland shooting. To be completely honest, uh, people there there's some speculation that the decision to push it had more to do with some of the incredibly harsh reviews that the show had oh, received, okay. rather than its actual content. Like I think the content is still definitely an issue, but. I think there's a greater concern about the fact that th- there may have been more concern over the fact that the show is getting really bad reviews. The premise of that show is really problematic in a lot of respects, like because it's trying to flip the idea that you know marginalized people, you know gender queer, gender queer individuals, people of color, people of size uh, are, you know, are it basically recasts them as the mean girls who are running the school. Oh, so they flipped that whole storyline from the original Heathers. Exactly. And so they're trying, they're, and, they're, and that's an idea, and that's definitely something to experiment with, but I feel like this, for everything I've heard, the execution just doesn't pay off. Like, it just it just comes off as kind of nasty and mean. Shut up, Heather. Yeah, shut up, Heather. Heather, only I tell Heather shut up. Oh, yeah. Fat kids can be popular. The preferred term is body positive. What about the Asian kids? And the gender queer? Right. Obviously, the gays and Jews are over. She looks like if Jim Henson got in one last puppet before he died. Gosh, Heather. Super mean way to treat the mentally challenged. Jesus. Has the Me Too and uh, those type of good conversations that have come up during the past year or so, do you see any of that reflecting already now in this TV season, either in front or behind the camera? I feel like there's a lot more conversations happening around representation behind the camera. A lot more shows are really paying attention to that issue. And uh, Jessica Jones just released its second season, and the, film, the the creator of that show very deliberately hired all women to direct behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, thirteen women directed thirteen all thirteen episodes, um, and 
Right. That I mean that that that's the sort of thing like people are making more of an effort to do now, which is really exciting to see. The long-term effects of the of these conversations are still kind of in the offing, but I feel like there's a new investment in telling stories about marginalized groups that is a big part is like the is the best benefit of of the Me Too movement is making sure that you know those stories are being heard. So I was reading that there's quite a bit of transphobic material, at least some people feel that there is in Ricky Gervais' new Netflix special. Have you seen any reactions to that? I mean, I think Netflix has Netflix has always been very much a, you know, hands-off organization in terms of especially when they're working with like named talent that they've really supported over the years like Ricky Gervais. They've been giving him specials and promoting his work and buying his films for a really long time. And by a really long time, I mean a couple years. Which is a long time in TV years, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah, streaming uh, and I years. Think, yeah, so I th- I, it's not at all shocking to me that, you know, Netflix didn't push back on him on that because, you know, that's his talent. Uh, the same thing happened with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle had right. um, some, some very controversial material in his recent comedy specials that, you know, it's what Dave Chappelle wants to say, and Netflix is going to let him say it because that's the kind of investment they make in their talent. But do you think that that's a good investment for the viewers? It's a tough one because the whole point of what Netflix is doing is supporting new talent and support is support, supporting their talent and giving them the kind of you know freedom that they've that you know they are famous for giving. Mm-hmm. And there's enough Netflix programming where I'm that I'm a big fan of, where I'm like that I you know I want them to have that freedom. Uh, I want I want those creators to be able to do, explore their material and take on new opportunities. Right. But I think there is also room for like not actively punching down. Mm-hmm. And you know sometimes creators need to be told like you know, need there needs to be a conversation like there needs to be feedback. Um, so it's it's a tough one. I, I think I think the thing that needs to be happening right now in general is just conversation. Right. And that's that's the thing. I mean, it mirrors the entire conversation about everything from. You know, can you separate the art from the artist to, you know, what can we we should be able to talk about everything, that type of thing. But at the same time, it just I mean, to put it easily, uh, in my own opinion, as a viewer, it just seems like lazy comedy. (laughs) That's the thing of it. Like, I mean, you know, when there's so much great comedy out there happening to have that. Yeah, that's I think the biggest issue is like, you know, the, the biggest thing issue like that Netflix has right now is they're so consumed by like creating as much original content as possible. There's been a decline in quality just like across the board um, that we've been observing constantly, like, you know, just shows that might have could have used a little more development or could have used a little more time instead are well, not time. They don't get rushed, but they don't they don't get the support necessary to actually, you know, hit the upper levels of great shows that we were getting in the early the early years of Netflix's run. Okay, so you see a difference between them and other streaming services or channels or well they're the kind of the biggest name in town mm-hmm. um i feel like i feel like hulu takes a little more care with their shows um and i feel like there's more of a development process that happens there amazon i think gives its creators a lot of freedom in the same netflix sort of model as well but they're also that that company is also kind of in flux because of various executive changeovers uh so who knows what's going on with it so are there any of the new shows that are disappointing Oh man, that's a good question. Um, uh, we have this new show called Rise coming out on NBC right now, and I've seen, I've actually seen the whole season. Uh, and it's not, it's it, it's a show that has so many problems that's fa- it, that it becomes genuinely fascinating how 
problematic it is. Is this the high school musical type? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. With Rosie Perez. That- yeah, with Rosie Perez and Josh Radner um, as the white man who's right about everything. Oh. Um, yeah, it's it, 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 like every review that's come out has basically said Josh Radner is insufferable in the early episodes, especially of the show. But there's good elements to it. But it's like that one's one where it's just like, oh man, this it, it was not good. I can't believe I watched the whole thing. <laughs> that's dedication to your to your profession. <laughs> I was I was curious. I have one more to ask you about. That's uh, one called Sharp Objects. Oh, yeah. I've been hearing a lot about. What's that? Sharp Objects is based on the Gillian Flynn novel. It's about a a reporter going back to her hometown to investigate a killing. It stars Amy Adams and I think in a really solid supporting cast as well. I think Patricia Clarkson. I could be wrong about that. Um, And it's created by, not only is it created by uh, Marty Knoxon, who has become a really interesting creator. Um, Buffy. Yes, but starting in Buffy. And then she co-created the Lifetime series Unreal, which has always been a favorite of mine. The Catch with Sharp Objects is that it's not premiering until June. Mm-hmm. So it's not a part of this year's Emmys, Emmys race. Uh, we have to wait a little bit longer than some of these other shows to see it. But it should be it should be a very interesting show. That one's probably one of them that I'm looking most forward to, I have to say. Liz, thank you so much for taking much more of your time than we talked about. <laughs> oh, no worries. Great. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to IndieWire's Liz Shannon Miller and costume designer Ruth Carter. And thank you for listening to us here on Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture or Instagram, Pop Culture Confidential. See you again next week. I'm Christina Yerling Beetle. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.